audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. Now there's some of you probably out there who were raised in a large family. Now my idea, when I, when I married into the family that I married into, my idea of a large family kind of changed a little bit. I was thinking, you know, you know, six or seven total in the family, that's a pretty large family. Well, I learned that six or seven or more kids on top of mom and dad, that's really, really um, a large family. Now if, if, you, if you had the privilege of being raised in a large family, there might have been times when that wasn't the best in the world. And what I mean by that is this, there might have been times when you were swept up in the consequences of somebody royally, royally messing up, okay? And, um, and maybe the lines in your family looked a little bit like this, nobody going to fess up? All right, then line up. And, and, and hearing the words line up from mom and dad there's, there's never usually anything good that follows that, okay? We're not talking about line up on Christmas morning and get your Christmas stocking or something, okay? It's like, like we're in trouble here, and if nobody's going to fess up to it, then line up and take what's coming, okay? Um, perhaps there has been a time in your life when you were facing punishment and you were truly innocent. Now, I don't mean that you said you were innocent. I mean you truly were innocent, okay? So maybe you've been there before. Perhaps you've even had, you at some point in time, have been punished for doing something that was truly right. I mean, you did what was right. And as a result of doing what was right, you weren't rewarded you were punished. If you have ever been in that position before in your life, whether as a child or an adult, you are in very, very good company. As we look to Acts chapter 5, there's some things we've got to understand about what has taken place here. It is still quite early in the life of the church, and by church it means gathering, it means group, it doesn't mean a place, it doesn't mean a building, it means a gathering, it means a collection of God's people. A collection of God's people through Jesus Christ. Those who are followers of Jesus. And, and that was still pretty early. We're just months into it at this point. And at this point in time, it is still confined, if you will. The message, the movement is still in, for the most part, Jerusalem. And the apostles, those who did sit at the feet of Jesus for almost three years were the ones who were heading this up. And as we've talked about several times before, when we look at Acts of the New Testament, okay? It's the fourth book in our, or the fifth book in our New Testament. And when we look to it, it is history. It is the history book of our New Testament collection, all right? And, and not only that, it, it is called many, many times, Acts is just kind of the shortened version of, if you look at your Bible, it might say the Acts of the Apostles. Okay, it's the action book. But as we've said many times, it could better be entitled the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. And the Holy Spirit is still at work in Jerusalem amongst the people there through the apostles. So the first few verses we're going to look at today is just going to set the, set the moment, set it up for what we're going to look at, the actual event that we're going to take a look at. 
So beginning in chapter 5, verse 12, this is what it says. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. That's within the temple there in Jerusalem. It was still upright. It was still a place at that time. It isn't anymore, but it was at that point in time. But none of the rest dared associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. So catch that. There are those who don't really want to become followers, but even amongst those who aren't following the teachings of the apostles about Jesus Christ, they, they saw them as, as good people, as good men, as some of the other followers, good women. They, were, they looked up to them. That's, that's interesting, and we're going to see a little bit more of that play out today. Verse 14, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. All right. These verses set up quite a confrontation that is going to take place. The atmosphere of what is taking place here amongst the apostles in Jerusalem is very, very similar to what took place when Jesus was walking around. And he spent most of his time in Galilee, as we will see today. That was kind of the boondocks just a little bit. The northern regions, quite a ways north of Judea and Jerusalem. And that's where the most, majority of Jesus' followers, he spent most of his time up there. And early in the days of his ministry, there were people coming to him. They were flocking to him, and he was healing people. He was casting out demons. He was doing all of these things. Signs and wonders were taking place through Jesus. Same thing taking place here. Demons being driven out. Healing taking place. People, people were scrambling just to get those amongst them who were sick, or who were lame from, I mean, we just had a man that was lame from birth. He couldn't, he did, his legs didn't work. And they were laying these people, putting them in such a position so that when Peter walked by, his shadow would fall on them, hoping that they would be healed. It, it kind of reminds me just a little bit of Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus is, there's a crowd so thick around Jesus, he can't even hardly move. So he's kind of trying to make his way through this crowd. And a woman comes up and touches the edge of his of his robe as he walks by. And she was immediately healed of her affliction. So this is something very very similar going on. And all of these miracles taking place, these people being healed, these signs taking place, was accompanied by the message of the gospel. Jesus came, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. And salvation is only through his name. The apostles don't do anything without preaching this message. Peter and John have been told by the Sanhedrin, who's going to be another main player today in what we look at. They were the Supreme Court, the Senate, if you will, of the Jews. And they had already been told, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. Don't do it. Don't do it. We're warning you. Do not do it. Well, now it wasn't just Peter and John who were back in the temple preaching Look at this. This has confused me for years. i got to be honest with you. So many times I take Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 and kind of blend them up together. And what I end up with is thinking that it was just Peter and John who were doing the preaching the vast majority of the time. But there were others. And today it doesn't say just Peter and John. It says all the apostles were in the temple preaching the message of Jesus. They were right back in the same place 
that the, the Sanhedrin said, do not preach in the name of Jesus. And I can just think of the Sanhedrin. Man, the nerve of those hicks, those hayseeds from Galilee, they just won't shut up about Jesus. They just won't do it. You know something? I don't know if you realize this. If you, if you watch the news, you probably realize it. But, but children, and by children, I mean young children, all right? Um, children don't have the market cornered on, on temper tantrums. You, you realize that, right? Um, from Washington to McDonald's, okay, it, it, it takes place, temper tantrums. And usually, often the motivations are, are very, very similar, whether it's a little child or whether it's a big child <laughs> who's about 50 years old, right? Usually, usually there's, there's something taking place that sets them off. I didn't get it my way. I didn't get it my way. That I didn't get what I want. When I look at, at this next passage, there's, there's a word that, part of our passage, there's a word that jumps out to me. And it's a word that very much described the religious hierarchy, those who had the power in Jerusalem, their reaction to Jesus and now to his apostles. And it's this jealousy. They were jealous. So let's, let's take a look. We're going to see quite a tender, temper tantrum today, okay? Look at, look at verse 17. And we'll read the next couple of verses after that. It says this, But the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees. They were part of the political spectrum of that day. And they were filled with jealousy. They laid their hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. So we've already seen two of the apostles get thrown into jail just days before. That was Peter and John. And much like that day, it's probably similar this day. It's probably kind of late in the evening. So they gather them up. They throw them into jail saying, we will deal with them tomorrow. Plan A didn't work, by the way. Plan A was this. When they threatened Peter and John and said, don't be preaching about Jesus anymore. Well, obviously that didn't work. Not only were they doing it in the temple, but the rest of the apostles were doing it as well. So now, they're going to have to come up with a plan B. So let's see what takes place. Verse 19. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. And taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple. The whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in prison. They returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely. The guards were standing at the doors. But when we opened them up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Okay, put yourself for just a moment in the sandals of the Sanhedrin. As I told you, the Sanhedrin is the political, these are the people of power. You've got the Sadducees amongst them and the Pharisees. And just like in the United States, we kind of have two parties at work. There they had two as well. You had the Sadducees and you had the Pharisees. The Sadducees had most of the power. Okay? They, they come together. Put yourself into their, into their feet, into their mindset. 
You cannot allow yourself to believe that God busted these guys out of prison. Okay? Which that is what happened. God sent an angel. We get a little more details of this a little bit later on when Peter will be thrown into prison again and an angel comes and takes him out. Okay? Now this time we don't get all the details. All we get is this. The angel comes, sets them free, and says, continue to preach the message. Don't stop preaching the message about Jesus. But if you're in the Sanhedrin, you cannot allow yourself to accept that's what happened. Because that's going to mess everything up. That's going to say, God is for these people, we have to be for them as well. And they cannot allow themselves to do this. So if that, they can't allow that to sink into their brains, what's the only alternative? There's traitors in their midst. Okay? There's somebody who went in there and set those apostles free. Think of the ramifications of that. These, in their mind, now don't get me wrong, that's not what happened. An angel set them free. But if you don't allow yourself to think that, there's got to be another explanation. The doors were shut and locked, so somebody who had the key must have let them out. That means to the Sanhedrin, this message is even infecting our people. This message about Jesus. These apostles, these men, These hicks from Galilee are becoming a very real problem. And the number of people who are falling in line and becoming a part of this movement is growing every single day. And they have told us, these apostles have told us, they're not going to stop preaching. Here's the thing. Think of the surprise in the Sanhedrin when they find out that these guys are not only in prison anymore, but they didn't run away. They didn't head out of town. I mean, if you get busted out of prison, what are you going to do? Man, you're going to hop the next train out of town. You don't get thrown back in prison. But they didn't. They went right back to the temple and kept on preaching the message. I mean, this is a huge problem. These guys were not intimidated in the least. They didn't run. They just went back and kept on doing the same thing we've already told them not to do and we threw them in prison two times because of it. So we got a big problem on our hands here if we are members of the Sanhedrin. Let's see what what happens next here. Verse 26. Then the captain, and remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the captain of the temple guard I mean, this isn't, this isn't just a soldier. This isn't just a, a peacekeeper. This guy was very, very high. And in the level of authority within the temple, second only to the high priest. So we're talking about a guy with some clout here. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Continuing on. When they brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. It's kind of interesting to me that they bring the disciples back without violence. And then you notice Luke, the author, Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, he gives this little parenthetical note here that says, the reason they brought him back without violence is because the people... They love the apostles. The apostles, even for those who weren't falling in line with the teaching of the apostles, they held them in a very high regard. And that tells me, okay, 
you've got officers, you've got the chief of the officers coming out to arrest them. Who's really in charge here? It's like, will you please come without causing a scene? Because <laughs> if you cause a scene, we're probably going to die at the hands of the crowd here. So, fortunately, the apostles show some pretty significant restraint. They could have they made a mess right then and there, but they went quietly, peacefully with the officers and with the captain of the temple guard. They go before the Sanhedrin. Notice again in verse 28. Do you see the name Jesus anywhere in verse 28? They're talking about Jesus. Do you see his name anywhere? Listen how they phrase it up. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in Jesus' name. Is that what they say? No, they say this name. And they go on from there to say, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring Jesus' blood. No, this man's blood upon us. The members of the Sanhedrin cannot even bring themselves to say his name. Okay? They can't even do that. It is so very clear that they've got no control of the situation. And this is driving them crazy. They are the elite. of. They hold all the power in Jerusalem. Even to the point that weeks, months earlier, they forced the Roman hierarchy, Pilate, to kill Jesus. I mean, these guys are used to having power and they are, it is sinking into their thick skulls that they have no control over what is taking place here. So let's continue on. They say, you're going to bring this man's blood upon us, verse 29, but Peter's... And the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. God tells us to preach. You tell us to not preach. Who are we going to listen to? The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. They're not afraid to say his name. Whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It's interesting to me that Peter and the rest of the apostles, their, their, their mode of, of delivery does not change. He, they look at the Sanhedrin without any fear whatsoever and they say this, you killed him. God raised him up. Matter of fact, they even go beyond this. They say, you killed him by hanging him on a cross. The Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, makes it very, very clear. This is the most disgraceful way you can kill anybody. Deuteronomy 21 says, you hang on a tree, you're cursed. So they not only killed him, they killed him in the way to bring about the most disgrace upon him as possible. But that's how they treated him. What did God do? God bestowed on him the highest of all honor. Put him at the right hand. Of God the Father in the throne room of heaven. Put on him the name, the Prince. The Prince, the King of Kings. The Savior of all. Disciples make it really, really clear here. That whatever authority the Sanhedrin thought they had. It was trumped by God's authority. They say, God has told us to continue to preach this message. We must obey God rather than you. Look at verse 32. Apostles also make this very clear. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. 
The apostles are not only proclaimers of the truth of Jesus' resurrection, they are eyewitnesses. They saw it. And they're not going to stop talking about it. No matter what the Pharisees and the Sadducees say. Look what happens next. Here's our temper tantrum. You ready? But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. The Sadducees are beyond enraged at this. They are not used to people, these, these, these rednecks from Galilee, okay? Uneducated men. Having the nerve to stand before them and say, you killed him, God raised him. You're the murderers. To have the nerve to say, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to listen to God. And it says that they were cut to the quick. Literally, it means they were sawn through. Have you ever been undone by your anger before? I hope not. It's, it's, not, it's not being angry, it's being mad, okay? Like, like when you just... I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. A few of my tools have felt the brunt of my temper tantrums before. Okay? Fortunately, I usually have enough in my brain to keep from throwing something that isn't indestructible. Craftsman wrench, pretty indestructible. You can throw it pretty hard. You can usually take it. Okay? You, you, you can't throw a cordless drill. You, you can't. I've learned that the hard way. You can't. You can't. You can't throw it. You can't throw it. But it's not a craftsman wrench. Okay, so, so maybe, maybe nobody else in here has ever been undone by their anger. I, I am completely alone in this, okay? They were sawn in two, figuratively speaking, by their anger. And if the Sadducees could just get the Pharisees on board with this, they're going to take care of the apostles right here, right now. They're going to kill them. There's a problem with that. That could stir up a tremendous amount of trouble. For one thing, what's going to happen to all those people out there who hold the apostles up like yeah, like this? What's going to happen to those multitudes of people who are becoming followers of the teaching of the gospels? More specifically, followers of who the disciples, the apostles are following, followers of Jesus. What's going to happen? And then on top of that, in the ruckus that's going to take place, what is Rome going to do? You see... If Rome, this is the way Rome worked, it was an empire, and they would allow the local authorities to keep some level of power unless they couldn't control the people anymore. If they couldn't, boom, they're out, and Rome will take over. I mean, this is going to stir up a lot of trouble, but you don't think very well when you're throwing a temper tantrum, okay? You just don't. Fortunately, the Pharisees, who were a little bit, a little bit different than the Sadducees. They were that other political spectrum party there that were just a little bit different. And one of them in particular spoke up, and let me tell you something. (laughs) When it comes, it's always been this way, folks. It's not just recent history. It has always been this way. When it comes to political leadership, common sense has always been a limited commodity. (laughs) Okay? I mean, it seems like it's been that way forever. Fortunately, There's a little bit of common sense still taking place in the Sanhedrin. Let's take a look at it, beginning with verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, by the way, you will see that name again in the book of Acts. The Pharisee Gamaliel, who studied at the feet of Hillel, who was a very famous high priest amongst the Pharisees at that time, before the Sadducees gained control, But it wasn't necessarily the 
the ones who he followed, it's who followed him. Because Gamaliel had a student whose name was Saul of Tarsus, who's going to become a big part of the book of Acts here before very long, and a big part of our history. So this, this Pharisee Gamaliel, he stands up. But the Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men joined with him and he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Now we don't know too much about this, this Thutis fella. There's not a lot about him from some of the historians, the contemporary writers of the day. This next one though, we know from history quite a bit about. Verse 37. After this, a man... Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. Now, Gamaliel isn't exactly completely honest with, the, with what he says here because, because this Judas of Galilee was the father, if you will, of a movement called the Zealots. And that was a pretty big, powerful my goodness, very violent group in that day and in that time. Matter of fact, one of Jesus' disciples, Simon the Zealot, was a part of that sect. So, but he's saying, these guys rose up, they had people who followed them, they were gone, and their movements died. So let's continue on. So, in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. Let them alone. For this, if this plan... If this action is of men, it will be overthrown. But catch verse 39. If you like to underline in your Bible, this is a good one to underline, all right? But if it is of God, if this movement is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may be even found fighting against God. And I just want to say, just for a moment, Wow, this guy's pretty sharp. <laughs> I mean, seriously, the Sanhedrin to this point in time, I'm sorry, guys, I'll call a spade a spade. They're idiots. I mean, everything they've done to this point is just stupid, all right? It's just dumb. It makes no sense. But this guy, he kind of gets it. He's not blind. He sees what's taking place. And he says, guys, if this is... If this is of God, we're not going to stop it. You think we have the authority to stop it? And he said, and think about it for a moment. If this is of God, where does that put us? The ones fighting against God. Kind of like this guy, all right? Let's continue on, verse 40. They took his advice, kind of. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak, to not speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. 
And brothers and sisters, there is our first. This is the first time recorded in history that people were persecuted because they were followers of Jesus. And when I say persecuted, I'm talking about physical persecution. I'm here talking about bleeding for the name of Jesus. Guys, I hope we realize being flogged is no slap on the wrist. Now, amongst the Jews, unlike the Romans who did this to Jesus, amongst the Jews, they were only allowed to do it 40 times. To whip the perpetrator 40 times. They actually did it 39 times because they didn't want to make the mistake of miscounting and, and go against what God said to do, okay? So they limited it to 39 times. And they do this to the apostles. The whip, also called the cat of nine tails. Because there were nine small, small little, little threads of leather that would come out from the end of the whip and embedded in those would be pieces of, of, of metal or, or pottery, something along those lines to inflict as much damage as possible. When they were whipped, the whip would usually wrap around the torso, rib cage. And then somebody who's really good at it, once it was wrapped, would jerk back on the whip and rip the flesh as it came off. 39 times. We're not talking, as I said, about a slap on the wrist here. Every one of the apostles went through this. Every one of the apostles walked away from that, which might be kind of miraculous in and of itself after that kind of punishment. And they walked away with what? With joy. Because they had been considered worthy to suffer. Not just to suffer, but to suffer like Jesus suffered. What happened to Jesus? He was whipped. He was flogged. Verse 42. I'm sure they're going to shut up now, right? <laughs> and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus. As the Christ. Had a shirt that I was given my sophomore year of college. We had dorm shirts. And uh, I was in Boatman dorm. I still remember it was a green, it was a green shirt. On the front of it was kind of, well, I, I take that back. On the front of it, it said, it said Boatman, Boatman Hall, all right. And then on the back of it was, was kind of a, a a picture of Jesus with crown of thorns on his head. Of course, we don't know exactly what Jesus looked like, you know. And it was, a, it was, it was the way it was done. You had to look at it really close to even know what you were looking at. But, but on top of that were these words. And these words are a quote from St. Francis of Assisi. Maybe you've heard something along these lines before. And this, this is what he said so many years ago. He said, he said, preach without ceasing. If necessary, use words. Got that? Preach without ceasing. If necessary, use words. And I know the point that he was trying to make in saying that. It was this. Our message is to be more than what we say. It's to be how we treat people of this world. It's how we are to act in love the way Jesus did. But I'm telling you. I'm sorry, Francis. Okay? Words are always involved when it comes to preaching. 
Now our actions should back up our words. But we must always be speaking the words of Jesus. Words are always necessary. The apostles were not going to stop talking about Jesus. It just wasn't going to happen. You know something, so many years later, almost two millenniums now, almost 2,000 years later, so many things have not changed. The message remains the same. The world's reaction to it, in a lot of ways, remains the same. There are still negative consequences for doing what is right. If we go about our lives and our words and our deeds represent our Savior well, there will be repercussions for that. There will be great things that happen because of that, but there will also be consequences for taking a stand for Jesus in this world. It's the way it has always been. It's the way it will always be until he returns. Here's the question. If we're courageous enough to do that and to suffer consequences for preaching in the name of Jesus, for telling people about the Christ, for taking a stand for those, perhaps even within our society who are neglected because Jesus did it all the time, For preaching the truth of the message. And the truth is this. There is no way. There is no way to heaven other than through Christ. I'm sorry. I don't care what the world says. This is our message. He is the only way. And if somebody leaves this world without Jesus. They will not spend eternity with God. They will spend eternity apart from God. And that's the place we call hell. That is the truth. Here's the question. If we take a stand for that, if we teach that, we preach that, if we represent that in the way that we live and we suffer because of it, what will our reaction be? Will we shake our fist at God and say, what are you doing? We're trying to do it right here. Or will we rejoice? Because we have been seen by God as worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Now that's a question to ponder for a little. 